Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. Today we're stalking the middle class, from Marx to Middletown to Macomb County, Michigan, to reveal what is hiding. Another long day's work is through, still one thing i got to do, got to get on the bus, ride it all home to you. All of our music today is from the Bottle Rockets, hailing from Festus, Missouri, and currently based in St. Louis. This is Get on the Bus, from the 2009 release, Lean Forward. Today's conversation with historian David Rodiger took place about a month ago on October 14th, and in between then and now fell November 3rd, Election Day in the U.S., and we have a new president-elect, Joe Biden. I asked Rodiger for a quick thought on the election. He said this via email. Quote, the rejoicing in the U.S., and it's worth noting, in the world, at the rejection of Donald Trump by U.S. voters is palpable. Data on voter behavior remains inadequate, but it appears that high school-educated white voters, dubiously labeled the white working class, and blamed for Trump's 2016 victory, shifted significantly away from Trump, especially among males. On the other hand, the election, and not only its 70 million-plus Trump votes, shows once again how the political grammar of saving the middle class and paying attention to the white working class constricts our political choices, even as impressive organizing occurs. 150 million voters, whether Trump backers or supporters of middle-class Joe Biden, voted for candidates explicitly opposed to Medicare for all, for example, despite the popularity of that basic demand." Another historian, Mike Davis, said recently in a Mother Jones interview, something which might boil down to the phrase, we are the 60%. Quote, in the elections over the past hundred years where Democratic presidential candidates have had the largest margin of victory, still the Republicans are able to count on 37 to 41% of the vote. But you need to ask yourself, why this constant percentage in American political history? What does it say? Particularly about the upper middle class, the local country club elites. Today, the hedge funds and private equity people are a very large base in this country for conservative politics. This was true in the 1930s. It was true to some extent in the 60s with the Goldwater Massive White Resistance Brigade, and it's true today. So when we talk about bringing people together, we shouldn't be talking about it in some vague populist sense, believing that there's this great basis of unity. It's the 60% that we're talking about and creating a class unity that is based on full recognition of structural racism and systemic discrimination." Unquote. At the end of David Rodiger's new book, The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History, he writes that in 2016, among whites, Trump won not one particular income category, but all income categories. The voting patterns of white workers were far more like those of whites in other class positions than those of other groups of workers. Perhaps unsurprisingly, his book about the mythic middle class centers on the politics, specifically the electoral politics, of whiteness. In the afterword to the new book, he notes a truly forgotten aspect of the white working class. That polling done by the AFL-CIO shows nearly 40% of the white, non-college educated electorate as Democrat, or leaning Democrat, with 80% or more of those approving of Black Lives Matter and not wanting a border wall. There is a space of unity in these numbers, and these numbers beg the question, 
is the middle class, a chimera manufactured to promote class confusion, prompting white resistance brigades to go on marching while we all walk upon Du Bois's color line. David Rodiger is the Foundation Professor of American Studies at the University of Kansas and probably best known for his 1991 book, The Wages of Whiteness. And now, Stalking the Middle Class with David Rodiger on Interchange on WFHB. I think that, that Davis's passage is a little bit overly electorally driven. I don't think that anything that the upper middle class is anything like 40 percent of the population in the United States, even in a town like Bloomington or a town like Lawrence, Kansas, where I live, a university town, which is just awash with realtors and petty landlords and college administrators of all kinds and and some kind of a medical uh, bureaucracy. Even in those places, I don't think you'd get to 15 percent being kind of a country club elite. So we still have to, and the quote you read from from uh, my book uh, about Trump winning not one but all electoral categories suggests this. We still have to contend with the fact that Trump has does have some support that stretches into the working class among whites. Uh, that he's he was he's not anymore uh, popular in all classes uh, among whites. I'm very interested in this idea of the. AFL-CIO poll of the 40% of non-college educated people who vote as Democrats or Democrat leaners with uh, support for Black Lives Matter and opposition to the border wall and progressive on a lot of other issues as well. When uh, Democratic politicians talk about listening to the white working class, they uh, define that group as conservative. What they really mean is that we're going to listen to the conservatism on racial justice issues and sometimes on guns and other issues of that group. Um, but it turns out that that group is much more complicated than the rhetoric uh, lets on. And there are lots of left-ish people who are part of Davis's 60% and the 40% that I allude to. The middle classes, we've already started to, um, I guess, sort of break down in, into how we can be as specific or as broad as possible in some sense, right? You're you're constantly saying people try to define the middle class as really everyone except the upper classes uh, or the 1%, basically. Uh, but the idea of the middle class itself uh, seems to be an idea of a thing uh, and is uh, seems to be uh, proposed to be as aspirational as anything else. I do think that the middle class doesn't exist as a class in Marxist terms. Uh, C. Wright Mills's great radical uh, history of the middle class called White Collar. You get to the very end of it and you find out that he doesn't believe that there actually is a middle class. And then you go back and look at the subtitle and sure enough, it says middle classes. It's very difficult to imagine a political mobilization of a group that's this large and this heterogeneous. The crisis, I think, doesn't just involve a group of people who think that they belong in a higher social status than the economy is is delivering to them. And even as they sink, cling to this uh, illusion, uh, they're certainly encouraged to, th- to cling to the illusion, but they don't necessarily cling to it out of wanting to, uh, to stay in a privileged position. In their minds, it's a miserable position in many cases, and there are real material bases in the ways that middle class, that is office and sales workers, are bossed at work, the way that they're observed, the way that their personalities are for sale, the extra hours of work that they also do because labor law 
uh, doesn't necessarily protect their overtime pay. So in terms of both overwork and debt, they also have historically had the most access to credit in the 20th and 21st century United States. So the, the ways that uh, the middle class is formed, it is a subjective category. It's not a, a class where some people own things and other people don't own things. It's a subjective category, but that subjective category has real material dimensions that are not just privileges. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Stalking the Middle Class with historian David Rodiger, whose new book is A Political History of the Very Concept of the Middle Class. Rodiger takes us from Marx in the 19th century to Middletown, USA, really Muncie, Indiana, in the 1930s, and on through the so-called Reagan Democrats, discovered, or rather created, by star pollster Stanley Greenberg in Macomb County, Michigan, showing us how a variety of positions and opinions have been reduced to form one mythic being, the aggrieved white male voter. It's maybe been easy to find that those issues you just mentioned, the kind of debt, the debtor American, the uh, the misery of trying to aspire or trying to hold on to or fear of falling out of that particular class can easily extend to a huge percentage of people. And we can, uh, of course, understand a very uh, bottom tier of poverty and a very top tier of, of wealth. And then in the middle, find all these people struggling with these particular ideas ideas of themselves and what it means to be middle class, and in this way, uh, constantly be sort of depoliticized by their economic situation. Yes. The way that Romney and Obama got to 96% of the population being middle class is that their pollsters, strategists said, well, if you make less than $250,000 a a year, you're middle class. So that right away leaves out the poor. At that time, about 20% were at the poverty line or flirting with it or below, uh, but they all get called middle class. And then the $250,000 is a very high uh, ceiling. So you're talking about a a group of people who basically have very little in common in terms of their their resources. And then if you add in race, the um, wealth of the so-called white middle, say the 40%, uh, whose income is in the squarely in the middle of the uh, income structure, they have 10 times as much wealth as black so-called middle class people. So what the middle class hides is very great. Yeah, to a purpose. Yes. Let's let's go through this uh, in, in more particulars. Now, just take a look at your book's title, which is The Sinking Middle Class, um, a political history, and it is a, a fast-paced history. The sinking middle class is is not a lament, uh, and the title sort of, uh, I guess, comes out of the Communist Manifesto, right? Well, the, that, that particular one comes out of the Orwell quote. The Wigan Pierre quote. Which, riffing on Marx right. uh, and, the, and Engels and the Manifesto, about the, the, the falling sinking of the, of the middle class. But Orwell is saying, is embracing that and, and, and saying these are people who share in the economic woes of the, of the working class and in many ways often are working class people, clerks. And therefore, uh, he thinks it's not a bad thing that they're coming to see their sinking. To see that they're working class and not this other thing that is, again, more psychologically damaging than, than a reality. I don't think we we need to be purist about that. I mean, I guess I grew up thinking that badgering people 
I grew up politically, so after I was 20, uh, badgering people who called themselves middle class but had working class jobs to say, no, 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 you got to quit doing that. And I don't know that we really get very far with that insistence. I do think that we need to be able to make sure that people who are defining themselves as middle class see that a lot of their problems are actually as workers and as underpaid workers. That Orwell quote and your book itself uh, is uh, indicating that uh, sinking out of the middle class is a good thing. Without being callous toward people who are, who are falling, Orwell had the great advantage that you could always tell that he was a little bit being wry when he, when he took extreme positions. He takes in the epigraph of, of my book a very, very extreme position about how wonderful it is that all of these small merchants and uh, office workers are having to come to grips with their actual class position, but it's always rescued by a kind of gentleness and and humor. We wouldn't want to say either in our own lives or in the lives of uh, of others that the fall itself is a good thing, but the realization is a good thing. It's time for a break with the Bottle Rockets. This is Rural Route from the group's self-titled 1993 debut album. We'll continue stalking the mythic middle class with David Rodiger when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Stalking the Middle Class, from Marx to Middletown to Macomb County and beyond. David Rodiger is our guest. He's the author of The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History, and The Wages of Whiteness. We'll begin our hunt for this class that isn't a class in the 19th century. I know a guy's going away. He might even be leaving today. Where he's going, he's going to stay. He ain't coming back. I don't think that it is right for a man to work all his life, have a house and kiss and wife. Lord God, why is life? Your book starts basically with an uh, influential pollster named Stanley Greenberg, but let's uh, I'd like to work a little bit more chronologically just to kind of help myself understand the path of this term or the path of of this idea of the middle class in particular. In your book, you do talk about uh, the Communist Manifesto from Marx and Engels. This was uh, published in 1848. And what does that specter have to do with the middle class in the U.S.? Marx and the Marxist tradition are often uh, derided for uh, not getting the middle class. From the right, you get the criticism that Marxism failed to predict the durability of the middle class. 
in the United States, particularly, that's what American exceptionalism posits, is that the United States is distinct because of its always strong, always independent middle class. It's not quite the case. In fact, the Marxist tradition uh, from Marx to Mills to Eric, the late Eric Olenreich to Barbara Ehrenreich, that tradition has produced, to the Frankfurt School in Germany, has produced the very best scholarship on the middle class. And Marx's prediction in the Communist Manifesto, and then again in reflecting on the later revolutions in France and the Paris Commune, Marx's predictions that the middle class was going to sink and fall uh, were not wrong. The middle class he was talking about and Engels was talking about in the Communist Manifesto was the small shopkeeper in big cities and, and the small landowner outside of big cities. And those groups were sent into crisis uh, by the rise of big capital and industrial capital in the late 19th and the 20th century. And in the United States in particular, the, the free farming population went from being a majority of the population when Marx and Engels wrote the manifesto to being negligible today. I mean, if you win the, the farm vote, you don't really gain any big advantage in the United States at this point. The middle class in the manifesto is treated as something that is going to disappear. The crude way to think about that is that what Marx and Engels are arguing is that it's going to disappear because the economy has no room for it. But the more hopeful second point that they always relied on was that it's going to disappear because they predicted such great motion among working people that some layers of the so-called lower middle class would be attracted to that motion and would, as they sink, identify with not just the working class as a social position, but with the working class as a social movement, and would therefore uh, come over to the side of revolution. In the revolution itself, uh, in 1848, Marx and Engels found that that happened with uh, lamentable lack, that the lower middle class, they thought, became kind of the shock troops for counter-revolution, and were all interested in getting their shops reopened under whatever terms and were put off by the power and militancy of, of those uh, below them. So they didn't see it happening, in fact, in 1848, but they still predicted it and looked for it and sometimes found it, but mostly um, didn't. Well, there's a point you make later in the book, the idea of the lower middle class as as uh, as open to reaction generally or you know, still being that particular worry that you start to think about in terms of how uh, how e- economic structure uh, ends, ends up sometimes pushing that class to the right. That problem is one of the reasons that the Marxist tradition is so um, trenchant in its study of the middle class, particularly in the 20s and 30s in Germany. The perceived connection of the lower middle class with Nazism and in Italy with fascism was very, very profound. And so part of the famous Frankfurt School, uh, Adorno, Eric Fromm, uh, Herbert Marcuse, others, part of their research was to do extraordinarily detailed research that tried to differentiate, and the terms don't quite translate from the German perfectly, but tried to differentiate the social and political attitudes of working people whom they found more open, humane, progressive, and middle-class people whom they found uh, susceptible to right-wing appeals. German historians quarrel about how fully the voting uh, figures show that this was the case, but I think that the idea of a mass base of fascism in the lower middle class still uh, survives as a viable 
uh, position. We skip ahead, I suppose, there from 1848 to the 20s and over the Gilded Age, I suppose, as well. And one of the things you said also uh, that resonates throughout, right, is this idea of the amorphous, uh, sort of many-headed sense of this class makes it less uh, less capable to draw together and, and find itself uh, in a position to be against the upper classes, the elite, uh, uh, the elite wealthy of the world and, and the powerful. If there's a middle class and it and it seeks these particular aspirational ideas of what it means to be successful or what it means to be the right kind of citizen, uh, it it tends to not want to revolt in a sense, right? So, in the do we have in the Gilded Age a period where there's antagonism towards immigrants at the time, uh, European, Northern European? Um, Eastern European immigrants uh, at the time where there's a, a huge influx of a kind of anarchist tendency in a lot of the cities uh, in the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, is there a class situation there in particular, or is it just that sort of influx of immigration that had created this milieu of, of I don't know what, of da- danger, <laughs> instability? That's a very um, nice phrasing of it, and particularly the flagging of the, of the Gilded Age is useful. There's a little... Um, neighborhood not too far from Haymarket Square in in Chicago uh, called Union Square that kind of stands in among some cultural historians and literary critics as the location of the middle class in its late 19th century form. It's it's the location that much of uh, Sister Carrie Dreiser's novel is set in. And it in the 1880s, we know from the work of the great sociologist Richard Sennett, it became the site of this wild Red Scare conspiracy after Haymarket and even a little bit before Haymarket, uh, in which so-called middle class people panicked about crime, but also panicked about anarchism. And so the coherence of this neighborhood politically is formed both by the fact that its incomes are about the same, its social position is about the same. I'll talk about that in a, in a moment, but also that its fears and its waspishness is shared. And that creates this little kind of classic middle-class enclave in Chicago. Two things need to be said about that. One is that very few of these people ever define themselves as middle-class. The term middle-class scarcely existed in the United States in the 19th century. The few uses of middle-class in the U.S. press and literature in the 19th century tend to be about Europe, where people are talking about those same middle classes of shopkeepers and and, uh, peasants that Marx and Engels were, were talking about. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Stalking the Middle Class with historian David Rodiger, whose new book is A Political History of the Very Concept of the Middle Class. Rodiger takes us from Marx in the 19th century to Middletown, USA, really Muncie, Indiana, in the 1930s, and on through the so-called Reagan Democrats, discovered, or rather created, by star pollster Stanley Greenberg in Macomb County, Michigan, showing us how a variety of positions and opinions have been reduced to form one mythic being, the aggrieved white male voter. The other thing about the the Gilded Age, though, is the, the Gilded Age is kind of the period in which you can begin to see that this heterogeneous group that you're talking about this unwieldy group that's going to eventually be called the middle class really consists of at least two groups, two big groups, one of which we now call the old middle class. That is people who own their own business or who own their own farm. And the other of which is called by sociologists anyway, the new middle class, meaning new in the late 19th century and then dominant in the 20th century, meaning office workers, sales workers, 
people who define the managers in big enterprises, people who define themselves by new occupations that are different from their parents that have middling incomes, but then develop the suburbs, for example, as their great cultural creation. They move away from their old middle-class parents who in Union Park maybe owned a dressmaking shop or owned a butcher shop and lived above it or lived below it. So this split between an old middle class and a new middle class is taking place precisely in the Gilded Age and in Europe too. And Marx begins to notice it near the end of his life. He begins to write about this possible new layer that he thinks will get bigger and bigger. He doesn't give any kind of a systematic account of that of that layer, but it's very clear that the term middle class is getting stretched already by the Gilded Age. So uh, you mentioned that it's not a term that's really in use at all. And one one of the classic texts you look at to kind of talk about that or show the way class thinking is going on in the U.S. at the time anyway is the study Middletown, uh, which is actually uh, represents Muncie, Indiana in the 20s. Uh, so how do we get from Marx to Middletown or how, how does Middletown become something to study in the first place? Well, when the Lins visit Middletown to do a, a study of it in, in the in the twenties, uh, they very much resist uh, middle class as a term. Their contention is that there's uh, an upper class, so that it makes sense to talk about this upper class, which they call the elite, and then it makes sense to talk about a business class, which is kind of the country club elite that uh, that Davis is talking about in your in your lead into the to the show. But there's nothing, and then they're working people, but they they don't really recognize a middle class. And I use that in the book to suggest that this was not a nation that constantly thought of the middle class as something that was important to address. In the teens, I think the International Socialist Review in the 19 teens published an article called "What Class Are You In." for it coming out of Chicago, this great socialist journal. And they didn't even bother to anticipate that any working people, any of their readers might think of themselves as middle class. So middle class is not in that book. It's not, it's, it's only in Middletown to say, we don't believe there is one. But then when uh, Lynn's re- revisit Middletown in 1937, they say, oh, we think we're starting to see a middle class here. We Now we know what people are talking about. And it's really in the late 20s and 30s that that term begins to gain a certain foothold, both in popular consciousness and in usages by intellectuals, not by politicians, but by intellectuals. So there is a thing like something that's demonstrably middle class, or it's a thing that people start to call themselves. I, you know, part of the interesting thing about the book is trying to understand the ways in which we talk about ourselves and the ways in which we're given terms to, to use for ourselves, right? So a big part of the next question we'll have or the next thing we'll get to is just sort of polling in general you know when you ask people and you just mentioned it now actually in terms of the the article you know that says which class are you you know it's asking questions that give you the the definitional terms of identity and so you know the questions really then become how are we talking about ourselves and why are we talking about ourselves that way or you know why does it why is there a way that we begin to imagine a middle class existence at this time the first big jump is during the Depression, and I, I think that part of what is getting talked about under the rubric of middle class there is a kind of respectability and grit and continuation and a kind of aspirational not only to rise to the middle class, but to rise back into a kind of a middling position among people who have, and the comparisons with today are great, been devastated by economic collapse. 
But that is still small compared to the wholesale rise in the Cold War. And in the Cold War, sort of 1945 to 1965 especially, uh, the use of middle class in writings in the United States just skyrockets. And it becomes a kind of a stand-in for American exceptionalism, for America as the greatest place in the world, for the glories of free enterprise, for the compatibility of free enterprise with raising most people rather than just raising the very rich. And also it becomes a kind of a, a stand-in for the suburban house, for the stay-at-home wife, for the modern kitchen. When Nixon wants to debate the Russians, wants to debate Khrushchev about the superiority of the U.S. system, and he contrives to do it in a, in a model kitchen, he's really reflecting this uh, idea that there is a middle-class standard of life in the United States and the fact that that middle-class standard of life is now being talked about as a middle-class, as a patriotic uh, against the Soviet Union. It's time for another break and another from the Missouri-based Roots Rockers, the Bottle Rockers. This is Align Yourself from the 2006 release Zoysia. Stay with us for more with David Rodiger on how fascism finds its way into a foundational understanding of the middle class. Welcome back to Interchange. In this segment of our program, Stalking the Middle Class, David Rodiger talks about the white-collar fascist within the middle class, a proposition offered by the German Frankfurt School to describe Nazism and its supporters. And then we'll turn to C. Wright Mills's classic 1951 study of the middle classes. Note the use of the plural there. to jump back just a little bit there in terms of, I guess, how we're moving out of the Great Depression. In that Middletown in Transition book, you point to, uh, or they, the Lins, point to a uh, an editorial written about uh, the Spanish Civil War, which is kind of interesting. It was actually a fascist right-wing coup. Uh, that's the That was the problem in Spain and not the anarchism <laughs> that, that the, I assume, the person that's writing the the um, opinion piece, you know, had more of a, a sense that the, the working class revolted when, when it was actually the opposite, some other thing that happened, not not so much the the response to feudalism or whatnot. I think that, that editorial, which, of course, the Lins don't 
endorsed. They reprint it to show how middle class is already uh, being used to kind of uh, foreground this rhetoric of the U.S. is an exceptional place, not like Spain. But also buried in that is a kind of a reaction to the rise of the CIO in the United States and to be able to say that the uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations, the first really mass uh, trade unionism in heavy industry uh, in the United States, is also not going to be the wave of the future. It's instead this middle class that's always and everywhere the real American story that they're introducing with those editorials. So we, we do uh, begin to think in terms of fascism here, though, and, and, and here is where we again uh, find the, the Frankfurt School and trying to understand what happened in these uh, countries, what happened in Germany, what happened in Spain, what happened to these um, middle class, respectable people becoming you know, pro-fascist. Yes, and, and without going too far into the German case, Krakauer's book from the Frankfurt School on the middle class is a kind of a, a book that really stands up well. It's kind of half ethnography, half sociology, half political theory. I guess I need more halves. <laughs> it's a spectacularly good book. It and others, Marcuse eventually, also um, reflect the importation of Freud into Marxist theory to try to get a handle on this identification with great power and great leaders, again, with contemporary echoes by people who are themselves uh, not seeing uh, greatness ratified in their own lives. So Krakauer thought of them as white-collar proletarians. He thought they were workers, but he thought they were more exploited, or at least more miserable, uh, than uh, blue-collar workers. But again, he said that he didn't think that they were organizable because they were so fissured and and uh, so, and also because the left had made so many mistakes in ignoring them or in uh, expressing contempt for them. So the, the Frankfurt School really, really took seriously this problem of the white-collar fascist. American so- sociology, the Frankfurt School materials were uh, translated by a WPA project. So they were available in English, some of them, and particularly their precursors were translated. And then the Frankfurt School, of course, has to go into exile, particularly in New York City, and helps to form the new school for social research. And they then repeat in the United States the same kinds of empirical studies that they'd done in Germany, trying to think about who's the more intolerant population, the so-called middle-class population or the working-class population, with much more muddy results in the, in the United States than they had gotten in Germany. Did they have a, a, an assessment of how, why they were so muddy? Well, not really. They, they instead took the muddiness, that is the working-class authoritarianism, as they would have put it, that they were finding more in the United States than in Germany. That became the occasion when many Frankfurt School theorists turned to the idea of a mass society rather than trying to parse out the differences between working class and and middle class. When Adorno, for example, talks much more about mass society, it's partly in reaction to this encountering of a U.S. situation that they found very different from Germany, which, to be fair, had a tremendous organized socialist presence for a very long time, and therefore so-called middle class people could know that there was another possible way of being in the world and working class people could develop uh, progressive attitudes on all sorts of things. So let's go then to 1951 with C. Wright Mills's white collar, his study of the middle class also. So I assume Mills learned a lot from that school, Frankfurt School? Yes. uh, And also from a historian, radical uh, journalist uh, named Louis Corey, who had been a leader of the Communist Party, got in trouble 
changed his name, reinvented himself as a journalist and an economist. And he wrote a very good book uh, in the 30s on fascism and the middle class in the U.S., but more on the middle class. It became a model in many ways, right down to the tables that are in Mills's uh, white collar, with a kind of distressing lack of citation of Corey, I, I have to say. But Mills's work was transformative in, in its uh, ability to really dismantle this idea of the U.S. as a, as a middle class nation and to say, if we want to talk about a middle class in the 19th century, it was people who didn't have a boss. By the time you get to, the, to 1950, you're talking about a group that was bossed and bossed closely and observed closely and manipulated in terms of their personalities. So it's a completely different kind of group, although it still contains this remnant of entrepreneurialism. I think today about one uh, worker in 16 in the United States is an entrepreneur. But when people, when Republicans talk about the middle class, um, basically all we hear about is the entrepreneur and the debt that the rest of society owes to the entrepreneur. So they they want that 19th century image of the independent businessman as the middle class to still be uh, dominant in political narratives. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Stalking the Middle Class with historian David Rodiger, whose new book is A Political History of the Very Concept of the Middle Class. Rodiger takes us from Marx in the 19th century to Middletown, USA, really Muncie, Indiana, in the 1930s, and on through the so-called Reagan Democrats, discovered, or rather created, by star pollster Stanley Greenberg in Macomb County, Michigan, showing us how a variety of positions and opinions have been reduced to form one mythic being, the aggrieved white male voter. But as you point out, nearly everyone has a boss. Right. And a particular kind of boss in offices and in uh, sales. Uh, uh, if we think about Melville's great uh, short story, Bartleby the Scrivener, kind of the foundational work of uh, the office worker in U.S. literature from before the Civil War and, and when uh, copyist secretaries were male. Uh, Bartleby's miseries are very much about being under the gaze all the time and the judgment all the time of the boss who actually narrates the story but still comes out as a, as a meddlesome, judgmental boss. An industrial manager like Frederick Winslow Taylor might say, well, what I care about in the worker is can he lift 47 tons of pig iron in a day like I want him to and care if the person's nice or happy or a team player, but can he do that that work? The office and sales and management, middle management, tend to be places where uh, the production is important, but it's also a kind of a production of an image for the firm and a production of uh, peace in the office. So we get now to the current situation in which one goal of management is the performance of happiness, not anymore just for for office workers, but sometimes for blue collar workers, too, that people are a fourth of their performance evaluations are about how cheerful that they are. We see a kind of a particularly invasive kind of management that attaches itself first to white collar work, but then also kind of spreads into the uh, economy more generally. The idea of many or plural middle classes, right? So the idea uh, then begs the question of what are those particular middle classes? So what are what would they be organizable around? Or, you know, what are the ways in which there are multiple middle classes? Are they are they still economic classes? Are there some other things that that holds them together? 
I think organizable around grievances that maybe cut across some of the differences, say, between white collar workers and sales workers or between sales workers and highly paid auto workers who sometimes are discussed out as a middle class with industrial jobs. But I think the, the organizing issues are this kind of personally invasive management. We've had very little organizing around that so far, but tons of popular culture about exactly that kind of tension, degradation, almost all displaced as humor. If you think of shows like The Office, comics like Dilbert, you have plenty of, of awareness of the kind of foolishness of management in uh, offices and sales. But I think debt is a series of issues. Uh, we've seen it a little bit with student debt that's gained some traction as, as what might be called a middle-class organizing issue. The question then is how do you also make sure that it's an issue that reaches into working class and poor people's problems with debt as well. So that when we have a politics of debt in the United States, it's, you know, one day it's about payday loans and the next day it's about student debt. The next day it's about credit card debt. But we don't get a comprehensive set of, of things that would maybe meld people together that don't have exactly the same grievances about debt, but certainly have miseries that are caused by being so overextended. Right. You'd even be able to then class people by the kinds of debt they have. As you just detailed certain debts, they would be class debts. Yeah. And medical debt is another good example of this. It, I, we, we keep hearing these studies about how many bankruptcies are around questions of, of medical debt, sometimes for extraordinarily uh, economy of hospitals and drugs, minor debts, but ruin families. Uh, the attempt to collect them ruins uh, families. So, yeah, I think that would be a, that those different kinds of debt would be a good example of what might be a kind of an organizing strategy. And you did point out the sort of uh, the ways in which you, you know, when, when you are even a manager uh, or what you would consider yourself perhaps a, a higher up in a, in, a, in a corporate structure, you're still left with the inability to make decisions or feel like you're your agent in, in your particular job as you are also managed over. There's a very good study about the the health effects of that, of having responsibility without power in a middle managerial decision-making position. A very good study that talks about the ways that that shows up as stress and stress-related uh, illness that recently came out of Columbia. Uh, and I, I think it's very interesting that, to think about the professional managerial class as a middle class that has its own particular sets of problems that is pulled toward taking a manager's view of workers. There's no denying that, but are also workers <laughs> within the corporate uh, structure. So this is why the late Eric Olin Wright talked about contradictory class locations within the middle class, that there are these people who uh, in some ways re resemble working class jobs and in other ways differ from those jobs. <laughs> It's time for our final break. This is Sunday Sports, another from the Bottle Rockets off of 1995's The Brooklyn Side. More on why we should sink the middle class, as a concept at least, when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In our final segment of Stalking the Middle Class with historian David Rodeger, we discover how a radical labor historian became a center-right pollster for the Democratic Party and how the white working class, or the so-called middle class, emerges out of a very questionable ethnography. Is there a way in which that that very uh, variability, I suppose, or those contradictions as well, almost um, uh, serves the necessity, the political necessity of pushing it to our assumptions of whiteness, right? So the the one thing that is tends to be the the next the next step would be to group it all into whiteness. So you can be a middle class person as a white uh, person primarily, and all these particular variabilities go away under that identity formation. You know that takes us into uh, the pollster Stanley Greenberg and his work on the Reagan campaign, or uh, in particular, or for Reagan in particular, uh, in in Macomb, Michigan. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Stanley Greenberg. And, and how how he came to dominate a lot of what, what passes for politics these days. So Greenberg is a radical academic, a kind of a labor historian, a class historian of South Africa, uh, the United States, uh, Israel, Brazil. He does comparative, more or less Marxist labor history and then is denied tenure at Yale for reasons having to do with his activism and, and politics, probably. But his second career then is a wildly successful career as a center-right pollster and strategist for the Democratic Party. His particular rise comes in his ability to pose himself in the 80s and then in the early 90s as the person who could explain what was called at the time the Reagan Democrat, that is, the white working class, New Deal cherishing, Democratic voting uh, worker who then becomes a Reagan supporter with money from the United Auto Workers and from the Democratic Party. He goes to Macomb County, Michigan, and does these studies that try to get at that layer of workers. He calls them sometimes the white working class. In the book that he does out of it is titled Middle Class Dreams. Macomb County is 98% white at this time. It's chosen because the Reagan Democrat is, is the white working class Democrat. He goes there And he assembles these all-white focus groups and then gets them to talk about issues of race, largely. What gets revealed in those is how much of the white working class slash middle class identity that's being reported is based on, as one informant says, not being black. What makes us middle class is not being black, the informant says. And Greenberg takes this not as an opinion that has to be changed, uh, addressed, Uh, He doesn't say, oh, a lot of these people work with and have wonderful memories of going on strike with black workers in the plants that surround this area. A lot of them are go to the same union halls as black workers. He just excises that reality from their lives and lets them speak as white homeowners uh, in all white groups and mostly all male groups uh, initially. And then he reports to the Democrats that what's holding them back is that Democratic Party is seen too much as the party of Jesse Jackson and racial justice. And he argues that the way to, as people now say, pay attention to the white working class, as he would have said, 
pay attention to the middle class and everybody knew the middle class was white. He says that that has to occur not by developing a platform, but based on class issues or this is the time of NAFTA on trade issues, but on backing up from racial justice issues. So this is also where you we begin to think in terms of um, white uh, white victims and black privilege. Uh, some of the informants that he finds there in the late 80s already have that sense of many people in Macomb County by that time had moved out of Detroit after the rebellions in Detroit in the late 60s and then the rise of black political power in the integration schools after that. About 300,000 people get added quickly to the population of Macomb County with a real raw sense of racial grievance. And so they are very ready to say that it's actually whites who need defending. It's not uh, blacks who, who need defending. And Greenberg understands that this can be played into uh, vote. There's a very famous, it was very famous at the time, moment in the first Clinton campaign in which he goes to a meeting, he, Clinton, goes to a meeting uh, that Jesse Jackson is having, an Operation Push uh, meeting. This is when the Rainbow Coalition and Jackson still have power inside and outside the Democratic Party. Clinton appears at this meeting and picks a fight with Jackson by uh, attacking the fact that the meeting had also had Sister Soldier perform. And, and Clinton dredges up a quote in which Sister Soldier said she kind of understood that whites might be attacked during the Los Angeles rebellions. Clinton kind of eggs Jackson on to denounce Sister Soldier. Jackson doesn't do it. And then later on, in reflecting on it, he says, I had a feeling that Clinton was actually speaking to people who weren't in that room. What he meant was he was speaking to the whites in Macomb County. And sure enough, one of the things that I learned in, in doing this book was that it was Greenberg who said, this would work. Go pick a fight with Jackson and then spin it in a way that shows that you're not with him and that therefore you'll be seen as being with those Reagan Democrats that we're trying to reel back into voting Democratic. Now, and I said this at the top, right? This is a kind of manufactured schism at that point where instead of trying to heal or trying to play to the strengths of those differences, you know, so instead of instead of playing against the racism that becomes apparent in these backlash moments, right? Racism, of uh, anti-feminism, uh, anti-black racism that you could sort of build a party around and and grow larger by by having new constituencies um this is the, the opposite direction this is the the choice to become more like republicans yes and it takes racial justice off the table but it also takes class justice off the table because if uh attending to the grievances of white workers who are called the uh middle class if that's uh about denouncing or ignoring advocates of racial justice, if it's about ending welfare as we know it, if it's about the 1994 crime bill, if it's about the effective death penalty act, if it's about tax policy, all these kind of dog whistle issues that stand in for race, if that's an appeal to white workers, you don't have any necessity to make an appeal based on, say, labor law reform, trade policy, all of those things are also taken off the table. And this is the moment of the end of the Soviet Union. And so it would be possible also to uh, think about what the peace dividend is going to be used for and how we get away from a military spending-led planning in the economy. And that's also taken off the table. And it's taken off the table in Macomb County because Macomb County is a center of tank manufacturing in the, in the United States. So that for a number of reasons, 
this all-white place, Macomb County, of military manufacturing and auto manufacturing gets defined as the center of what increasingly gets called progressive politics in the United States, that it's the accommodation of the peculiarities and narrowness of this place and the taking of the workers there at their very worst when they're at home and in all-white groups rather than when they're in unions and at work, that becomes the contribution of Greenberg. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Stalking the Middle Class with historian David Rodiger, whose new book is A Political History of the Very Concept of the Middle Class. Rodiger takes us from Marx in the 19th century to Middletown, USA, really Muncie, Indiana, in the 1930s, and on through the so-called Reagan Democrats, discovered, or rather created, by star pollster Stanley Greenberg in Macomb County, Michigan, showing us how a variety of positions and opinions have been reduced to form one mythic being, the aggrieved white male voter. Well, you do point out throughout there are many ways that these things could have been looked at and discussed in many parts of their lives uh, that were different than these manufactured spaces where they were polled or talked to, right? Uh, they were grouped together in houses and, um, you know, they were, as you say, either mostly male and all white, and they had many different aspects of their lives that were ignored. Um, and yet, as you say, they become, that becomes the singular aspect of that type of person. And that type of person is the one that, you know, drives the politics of the era. Including feminism. You mentioned this earlier in the, in the uh, raw data reports uh, that didn't make it into middle-class dreams. There was quite a lot about the fact that the workers of Macomb County were increasingly becoming women workers and that this strained families, not uh, the fact of women's work, but the hours of family work became great. And that even as two parents now worked, families were, were falling behind financially. So there was this whole argument that gendered appeals by the Democratic Party, say on child care, might have a possibility of success. But those also get elbowed aside. Those also are expensive and, and uh, actually uh, would require capital to pay something, tax structure to be arranged so that childcare could happen. A whole range of progressive politics gets taken off the table in the name of, we have to do this in order for progressives, that is Bill Clinton, to win elections. Electoral politics are all that we talk about as politics frequently in this, at least in this country, or at least in the media, um, representations of what politics could be or should be or can be or whatever are reduced to this idea of elections, electioneering, uh, the ways they define groups who will vote one way or the other during these periods. We have a very narrow sense of, of, of what kinds of things are politics and how they matter. Um, so how do we move away from these electoral politicking strategies or how do we ignore them? Or, you know, I don't assume that the media is going to change what they do. So what are we supposed to do uh, as we sit here and, and do our best to turn off our screens? The irony of the book for me is that I'm only so interested in electoral politics as a vehicle for meaningful social change in the United States. And yet I ended up learning and, and writing a lot about uh, this turn to the appeal to the middle class, particularly after the 1980s. I no more was trying to uh, convince people that electoral politics is unimportant, but I think that's a, a fool's errand in this particular political moment. What the book does try very hard to do is get us to, as you said, place that within a much, much larger set of everyday 
uh, and organizing politics that don't always and shouldn't always have to do with elections. And it means to to teach us that um, we do pay a certain cost for paying so much attention to particularly presidential electoral politics, where the discourse is in the immediate future never going to be anything but save the middle class. And so we're trained to kind of think, oh, yeah, middle class is a kind of us. It kind of defines us. It maybe defines the 99 percent. And that's just not true, I think. And and so we we need to find a a way to think outside of these electoral politics. To, To take an example from the Midwest, Michigan recently unsacessfully fought right to work uh, anti-union initiative and lost, but never really defended right to work and unions as working class institutions of self-defense. Instead, it entirely adopted the terms middle class. I ran into a labor editor in another Midwestern state who told me that her articles had a search and replace mechanism that if she used the term working class or one of her writers used the term working class, the replace was middle class. This is, I think, largely election-driven rhetoric that then turns up in our social movements as well and kind of accepts the fact that white workers can't be appealed to outside of their worst instincts, that those 40% of the uh, non-college-educated but left liberal voters don't really matter and, and can be kind of taken for granted as Democrats. So uh, I think the call is to really move beyond this single-minded emphasis on electoralism and the political categories, the middle-class categories that it privileges. I've been trying so hard It ain't been working so good You've been watching me, Lord I'm gonna do what I should That's our show. We'll close with a final track from the Bottle Rockets. This is Maybe Tomorrow, off of the 2018 release, BitLogic. Thanks to David Rodiger for speaking to us way back in the middle of October. Rodiger's new book, The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History, is published by Orr Books. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Oh, I try to get less.